Creative Babble. Um, how do you Americans say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? My grandfather was from Sicily. He rhymed with Al Capone. And he ended up doing 30 years in Alcatraz. And I'm talking murder, kidnapping, you know, things on that nature, the things that Al Capone and the mob did. The man you're listening to? His name is Carl. My father was raised by this man. So my father, he learned very quickly how to spot the scam. And what I mean by that, I I remember back in the 70s, and we were young, my dad had a dating service. And it was called a dating game. And what he would do is he would place these ads and he would look for people no different than what today is catfishing. My father would take advantage of people's loneliness by putting these ads and saying, if you're a guy, I'm gonna meet, you're going to meet a girl, you're going to fall in love, she's going to be beautiful, she's going to be great. And if it was a girl, you're going to have the husband you always wanted. According to Carl, these were not always real women looking for love. He would send the secretaries in the office. I mean, to him, he was running a dating service, but he knew the emotion of the way people felt when they're lonely, and that's why he opened it up, not to help people. And that was just his first scheme. Carl's father then started a business leasing beverage vending machines. He called it... Lickety Whip. And what he did was, he would have these beverage uh, machines on the boardwalks, in the pizza parlors, where you can buy either a pina colada or a strawberry banana colada. And what he would do is, the company didn't sell beverages. What What he did was, he sold businesses. Basically, he preyed on people who were desperately looking for jobs and then sold them a business. He would take whatever savings they had and left them to manage their very own vending machine route. And that's what he would do. He would bring he would bring people in in their 40s, maybe early 50s. He knew they had a they he knew they had money because if it was a 19-year-old kid calling, I need a job, he would say, "Okay, we'll call you back." But if it was a 40-year-old guy, chances are he had some money. You can put it on a credit card or something. So he took advantage of people that way. My father made it sound like this was the best business idea in the world, and you're going to make $100,000 a year every single time. Carl says you could make real money servicing these vending machines. If you worked it, it you know, you put, you, I mean, you had real machines, you had real beverage, but not everybody's built to, to, to own a business. And he knows when he had somebody in front of him, my, my father told me at a young age, he, he, says, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend Radio. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Two generations of con men, Carl slipped naturally into the family trade. His first con artist gig started at age 19. He just didn't know it yet. And, you know, without an education, I started looking in the help wanted ads. So I, I answered an ad, you know, no experience necessary, help wanted. He got a telemarketing job selling light bulbs, trash can liners, and cleaning chemicals to companies. I'm not saying all telemarketers are con artists. I'm just saying this particular company Carl's working at 
specializes in training young people the art of the scam. What they did, they, they called the industry bulbers, these, these guys. Uh, me too, at the time. You see, Carl's not selling any old light bulb. He's selling pretty crappy, cheap light bulbs at a premium price. And what we would do, if a, if a, a, a four-foot fluorescent cost a dollar, they would sell it for $10. So everything was times 10. That's a hell of a markup. Let's do some quick math. If you buy a box of 30 light bulbs at $10 a bulb, that's $300. Who the hell pays that much for light bulbs? But the bill would go to, go to the accounts payable. And accounts payable, if they see a bill for 30 fluorescent light bulbs, 300 bucks. it's going to be a right flag. They're not going to pay that bill. An easy way to get around all this is to give the light bulb a complicated name. So what the company did, they called it an F40T12 slash CW. They get that code from on the bulb, and it makes it look like something mysterious. Look, I'm sure Carl is a great salesman, but how in the world did he convince someone to buy a dollar light bulb for $10 a piece? So what they do, you, you call up, say, is the maintenance man around? And they knew just what to say to get past the secretary. The, the maintenance man, uh, what's his name again? Oh, you mean John. That's it. Can you put him on the phone? That was in the script. And I, I became really good at it. Carl never uses his real name. He just goes by his alias, Gene Reynolds. Hey, George, it's Gene Reynolds uh, over at the Delta Products. I just want to let you know uh, we got a new catalog coming out. Okay, I got to stop here. There's no catalog. Here's where Carl's sales pitch gets real interesting. Pay attention. I would say, hey, I got the catalog coming out to you. You know, I know it's summertime. If you need anything in the fall, let me know, okay? Um, in the meantime, we're sending out promotions. I got a nice little fishing rod for you. And um, I just grab your home address. And l let me see if uh, I, I'll get it out to you within the next day or two. That, that's where you look for the taker, okay? That's when you know a guy's a taker or not a taker. A taker. A taker is an industry term for someone interested in kickbacks. Carl's business objective is not to sell light bulbs, oh no. It's to find the taker inside of a business willing to accept bribes. So we're looking for that guy that's used to taking a bribe for an order. So once you knew you had the home address, you had the guy. It started as fishing poles, golf clubs, but then all of a sudden it went to a Sears gift certificate. And then all of a sudden it goes to cash. So, but you start off soft, sending things to their home address in, in private so the company doesn't find out that these people are taking gifts. Once Carl got the taker's home address, he would tell them. I would say, okay, great. Okay. When you get the catalog, you know, let me know when the fall comes in, you need anything, and I'll be able to help you. Okay. In the meantime, what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to send you a half a box of light bulbs and a five gallon uh, jug of degreaser, and that's it. Let me know when you have the big orders ready. And that would be the end of the script. And then to get the order, at that point, I remember the script. It said, do I put that to your attention, George, or do I need a purchase order number? Um, but the whole idea every single time is to pick up the phone, find the taker, and get, and get the person to take a box of light bulbs. The script was set up like they were going to send them something small. And everything was softened. You know, as you notice what I said, a half a box of light bulbs. After all, half a box of light bulbs doesn't sound like much. You could put 100 bulbs in a box. You could put 200 bulbs in a box. Well, a half box could mean anything. 
Carl worked in a telemarketing room with about 50 other people. I can just picture it now, the background chatter of cold calls and people hanging up on them. But every now and then, this skilled game of trial and error actually worked. Someone on the other end was willing to pay $10 a light bulb that only cost a dollar. Once the taker swallows the hook, Carl sends the bribe to his home and sends a $300 invoice to his office. Now you would see if, if the bill gets paid. And in 30 days, 60 days, when the bill gets paid, now that's when, these, that's when I was taught, now you hit them bigger. So once it was a $300 bill, the next bill would be 600 until you move these people up to $1,000 bills. Takers were just as guilty. Takers were just as bad at what we were doing. Uh, they, they were taking money and cash and prizes and gifts in return for ordering supplies that they might have needed or might not have needed. They might have even thrown them away. I heard stories and stuff like that. But you know, eventually, the maintenance man gets caught and Carl's taker is gone. And, and you call up and you ask, hey, is George around, the maintenance guy, because you've been dealing with him for a year and you've been sending him all these invoices. Oh, George is gone. Who took his place? John. Okay, can I talk to him? Hey, John, it's uh, over at the uh, supply house. You guys got that guy fired. You over, you, you, there's stuff in, in the attic. There's stuff in all the closets. There's real room for everything. And they hang up the phone on you. Carl was making good money, but it was time for him to go on his own. But where should he start? And what should he call his company? Cheap-ass light bulbs? No, 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 that's too obvious. So when I started my business, I said, uh, let's pick a big company and just put lighting and chemical in the end. So I picked a company called WW Grangers. For those of you who don't know, Granger is a well-known industry supply company out of Chicago. It's like if he took a well-known brand like Google and added uh, lighting and chemical to the back of it. And that's what we did. We, we ran with that. It was called Granger's Chemical and Maintenance. So what happened was we started invoicing people. People were paying bills. In fact, people paid bills to Granger's to us once or twice. We wanted people to associate the Granger's. So when they piled the bills up and paid them, it was they just saw Granger's. They weren't thinking it was some little telemarketing room in Northeast Philadelphia. No, we weren't Granger's, uh, but we, we wanted to pretend we were. We wanted to pretend we were. God, that is a brilliant business plan. Wait, actually. We got a cease and desist letter. And I remember talking to my partner about it and my father about it. And they told me to ignore it. So my father was, was once finally proud of me. I'm running a successful business. I have employees. I have shipments coming in. And he, he didn't even see the problem with it. But there was a problem. You know, he picked Granger, and boy, did he make a mistake by doing that. This is retired FBI agent Jerry Williams. Jerry says Carl brought the attention of law enforcement to his doorstep. Not for his telemarketing scheme, but because of his company's name. Jerry and her counterpart U.S. Postal Inspector Ed Matthias started doing a little digging. Uh, I can tell you this. Um, I don't think it's a trade secret, but I think we went um, picked through his business garbage and, and found some invoices. Ed and I probably had gone out there uh, in the middle of the night, you know, when I say middle of the night, maybe one or two o'clock in the morning, we met and we went out and, <laughs> you know, went through their trash and, uh, you know, brought it back and laid it out all stinky and smelly and, and started looking at, you know, some of the invoices and communications they had thrown away. 
And uh, those were a treasure because when you have an invoice that somebody has sent back with big red marks saying, this is a scam, I never ordered this, or this is, you know, 10 times the price that I agreed to pay for it, then, uh, you know, bingo, jackpot. Mm. So that's interesting because this whole time we're talking about the takers, but there's also just the people that are like, why are you sending me a $300 bill for 10 light bulbs? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like the telemarketing calls that we get at home. I mean, I can honestly say that none of them <laughs> are successful at my household. And I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same with you. But telemarketers wouldn't make telemarketing calls if they weren't successful, you know, some of the time. The FBI and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service had everything they needed to crush Carl and his business. But they had bigger plans. You know, we had a choice. You have a choice sometimes of going in with a search warrant, which is usually loud and noisy. Jerry started to realize that this scheme is much bigger than Carl's company. In fact, these telemarketing companies were running rampant in the Philadelphia area. So I actually walked into his office, introduced myself, and handed him the subpoena. I'm married, and I have two little kids, and I have no skills. So what I'm thinking, I'm scared. I'm in way over my head. I'm in my 20s at this point. So let's just say you're Carl, and an FBI agent and a U.S. Postal Inspector show up at your business with a subpoena. What would you do? Close the business, right? Not Carl. His lawyer told him, eh, just change the name of the company. And he didn't tell him anything about stop bribing maintenance people. Yeah, that was some bad advice. So the first lawyer looked at this as almost like a civil case where you just need to change your name and not use Granger. Even though we had the FBI and the Postal Inspection Service, which is criminal. Carl didn't get the hint. He's in serious trouble. From that subpoena, it was very clear, you know, that we were looking into the business, but for some reason it didn't click. And so as we learned that he was continuing in the business, uh, that's when we realized, hey, we got somebody here that uh, is kind of clueless, is in some serious trouble, and maybe we can help each other out. Jerry offered Carl a chance to be a cooperating witness. You see, the FBI and the Postal Inspection Service don't have the resources to investigate one business at a time. It's just not cost-effective, so they use Carl as a way to get in and take down the whole industry in the Philadelphia region. Will Carl rat out his telemarketing friends to save himself? Here's Jerry and Carl talking about the day she offered him the deal. When we came to you, when we offered you that possibility of being a cooperating witness, um, did you have to think about it too long? Jerry, I, I had a stay-at-home wife going to school and two kids. I, I didn't have to think about it too long. Okay, Carl's in. So here's the plan. Carl's going to go in and sell his leads to other companies. 
hey, you know, we're going out of business. We'd love for you to, to, you know, to buy our hot leads. You know, these are established takers. These are established companies that you can call today and get a fraudulent invoice right through. And so, you know, everybody in the industry was like, hey, yeah, <laughs> I'll take your leads. But these leads aren't real. They're fictitious businesses created by the FBI. In fact, it took months to set up these fake companies. They had to open up bank accounts, lease physical spaces, and have real people answer the phones. Uh, so we actually had like a bank of phones, and we knew that this phone was for the fictitious company in Denver, and this phone was for the fictitious company in Salt Lake City. And some of them were schools. Some, I think one was a, a fitness center. Uh, they're a nonprofit. Uh, you know, we... Uh, we looked at the type of businesses that they were scamming and we uh, created very similar businesses that had that kind of same profile. You know, like that's the thing, you know, it, sometimes with these crimes, um, some might think it's kind of like a victimless crime just because, you know, these big corporations, you know, they got all this money, but so, these were schools churches, nursing homes. Exactly. You know I mean, like, were, were they were they going after, like, very vulnerable small businesses? Yeah, because those were the ones that did not have the checks and balances. Once Carl sold the lead, it was instant. The phones just started ringing. And so the lead car said that the taker's name was... Let's say Jim Jones. And we set up the lead card, and so when the... Other businesses took that lead card and called the business to talk to Jim Jones to sell them. We told him Jim Jones had died. Wait, why would they say that? Just so that we could establish a new relationship. Oh, oh, Jim died. Oh, my. Oh, I've been working with Jim. We've been doing business for years. Oh, please. Uh, can I get his address so I can send him a condolence card? Oh, how is his family? Oh, when did he die? Oh, two months ago. Oh, I guess it's been two months. Hey, who took over for Jim? You know, who's doing the business for him now? And then we were able to establish a new relationship and, and just so that we can see how they operated. How did they get this new person's home address? What did they say to them as far as, you know, the little something that they were going to send them? You know, what did they say to them about, you know, invoices and product and prices? Uh, it, um, it was pretty good. Yeah, I actually, we, uh, I was answering the phone. I played a role. So I knew that every time, you know, the phone call came in for Denver, that somebody was looking for me and my undercover role, which was Grace Jeanette. You know, I had an accent that I used for, for Grace. And, you know, she was a nice uh, uh, grandmother type. You know, we, we do need some light bulbs. And I was wondering, you know, if, you know, you were going to be able to send out another gift certificate for me, because is that something that you could do for me? Oh, you are so sweet. You are so kind. And you're going to send that to my home. Will you be able to send that before next week? But if the other phone rang and there was nobody else 
around, I had to answer that phone too, you know, as a, as a secretary or, you know, sometimes I disguised my, my voice very deep and, you know, became a man. The phones would ring nonstop. All of these phones were ringing and we had to pick them up. And in a way, it, it got to be funny as the pressure got on because the phone would ring and we're like, you answered, or you answered, or you answered. And nobody wanted to answer the phone. In the end, Jerry and her team ended up taking down 16 telemarketing companies, even though they were only targeting eight. And so there were a number of companies, about six, who either stole our leads or, or were, were sold our leads, who started calling us too, and we weren't even after them. So that was unfortunate of them <laughs> you know, to, to, to also get tied in with us. And we basically took down the entire uh, light bulb industry or telemarketing business to business telemarketing industry and within two days because even if we didn't come to you on those two days you were thinking we were coming to you those two days and uh, you, you, you stop your business and what about Carl what happened to him let's just say he's lucky the FBI and the Postal Inspection Service got to him first because of his cooperation he was able to get a reduced sentence. He ended up getting a year and a half uh, jail sentence, which allowed him to go to a halfway house where he spent uh, 10 months, and I think then he had to do another month at, at house arrest. And that's how Jerry Williams helped take down an entire industry of scammers. But it's never really over, is it? It was a significant blow to the business-to-business telemarketing industry. But again, I have no idea what's going on now. And I would assume that uh, people are still in the game. If you like Pretend Radio, you're going to love Jerry Williams' podcast. It's called FBI Retired Case File Review. It's told by a real FBI agent interviewing other FBI agents about their biggest cases. It doesn't get more authentic than that. So, Jerry, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been a long time coming. I've been listening for a while, and I'm so glad that you gave me the opportunity to tell your story. Well, thank you. Uh, This has been great. You know, this is a mutual love affair. Uh, between our shows because I think what we have in common, uh, I like true crime, but like you, I heard you do an interview where you talked about not necessarily liking the gory details. Right. You know, a lot of true crime is almost like horror, you mm-hmm. know, where they break down, you know, some details that I don't want in my head. Right. And I think for both of us, what we try to do is to show a variety of criminal activities mm-hmm. and to and to show uh, those cases in a way that gives you an insight into uh, what people are thinking, mm-hmm. you know, not just what they're doing. Yeah, and, and that's the part that bothers me. You, you said it, like, I don't like the gory details. I think people like true crime for the psychological aspect, and I think that that's what we're delivering, right? With the way we're telling our stories, it's like, why did they do it? Putting them in the middle of the action... Yeah, I, yeah, and I totally agree. You mm-hmm. know, we're giving them the why, not just from the subject side, mm-hmm. but also from the investigator side. 
how is she being affected by this? You know, you know, what are their thoughts, you know, as they're going through the case? You know, what's at stake for, for mm-hmm. the investigator in addition mm-hmm. to the subject? Well, Jerry, thank you so much for coming on my show. And I really hope my audience gets to check out yours. It's called FBI Retired Case File Review. She's on every week with a new episode. She says she's only missed one week, and that was for her daughter's wedding and Christmas. What a pro. Also, Jerry's the author of Paid to Play, a novel inspired by real FBI cases. Before I go, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Jill. She has a brand new podcast. And if you love design, you're going to love this. Here, check it out. Hey there, Pretend Radio listeners. My name is Jill Maurer from the Maurer Glass Podcast. My show is all about one thing, design. Whether it's the design of robotic cars, holiday traditions, or the future of retail, my podcast explores the endless design that surrounds us. In one of my favorite episodes, I even interview Javier about his podcast and all of the hard work that goes into creating his amazing show. Here's a clip. I start out with a concept. I go and I start digging and I try to tie the concept to a real story. Right. And then and then I start finding either the victims or I always try to approach the actual con artists themselves to, to see if they would tell their side of the stories. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I'm really excited to tell you about this next show. If you like The Walking Dead or The Road or any post-apocalyptic drama, you're going to love The Breakers. Check out their promo. Breakers podcast follows Shepard Gray as he travels through a world ravaged by the killer virus KV-571. If you're out there, you're either a survivor, an outlaw ratty gunslinger, or you're an infected breaker. Find new episodes of Shepard's Story each week at breakerspodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Creative Babble.